Welcome back, everyone. We've got a special two-part series of episodes for you. This one, and then you can look forward to another one coming out. And in these two episodes, Andy and I were able to talk to the co-creators of the Real Arabic podcast, which we've reacted to before and found so fantastic that we reached out to Gear and Amr to see if they would have time for a conversation. And lucky enough for us, they did. So, of course, we ended up having a lovely chat. And before we went to talk about the podcast and how they teach Arabic through their very incredible platform, we, of course, had to shoot the breeze for a little while and talk about very important topics such as hot water bottles and their relevance in the United States, in Lebanon, in Syria, as well as in Ireland. Enjoy a little bit of our conversation before we jump into everything related to the podcast, learning Arabic, and what it means for Kiran Amr to have this platform. Plastic bag you fill it in the water, just a bottle in the bed. Hot, so hot like, water bottle. Hot water bottle, yeah. <laughs> Which I have introduced to Syrian society now. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, something really nice. <laughs> My family, uh, by the way, I have you with this. Thank Wait, you. hot water bottle in the bed? Sorry. I was just gonna say, Andy, like, there's so many Americans who don't know what a hot water bottle is. It's like a, it's like a plastic um, pack. Pack, yeah, that you can fill up with like almost boiling water, and then you close it. And it, it sometimes like it'll get so hot on the outside that it like could burn your skin. So you can like maybe cover it, it in like a little sleeve or wrap it in your. So it's like when they used to put um the stone like the hot stone in a pot and put it under in your bed to warm it up. Exactly. Yeah. But you like stay with it on you. It's the best thing in the whole world. We have very bad insulation in Ireland, so we use them a lot. I bought one from the Jordanian um for like the the Friday market in Amman. Mm. I was like, I forgot mine at home and I'm so sad. Um but it was like a really poor quality and it exploded in the middle of the night. And I, I mean, I just like, it wasn't even warm at that point in time. So it was God. just like cold. No, like no heat was on. I was like, I've been betrayed by a cold. <laughs> oh my God, that's awful. <laughs> this is like my nightmare though. You know, when you have like it boiling, you know, <laughs> like it's almost yeah. boiling water and you're like, yeah. oh my God, if this exploded right now, like I would have third degree burns. <laughs> 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 and on that very happy note, Hello, welcome to Shaywa Adderby with Coretta and Andy. And as you can hear, we have some guests. So our guests, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. My name is Amr. Uh, I am from Syria, South Syria, Swaida. Uh, I have been living in Lebanon since 2011. Uh, I studied, uh, I have uh, just baccalaureate degree with uh, finance and uh, I have been working here since like 2011 so far, and I live in Beirut, an area called Marmkhair. Hi, my name is Kira Murphy. I'm Irish and I'm currently living in Geneva. I lived in Lebanon for one year where we set up the Real Arabic podcast, Amr and I, and I'm currently working in the very strange and niche world of preventing violent extremism. Of course, we have already been talking in you know, you know, Coretta and I, but our discussion has been a little bit about what it is like to live in Lebanon. Could you guys tell us more about the daily life? Mm -hmm. Sure. 
is like uh, as I mentioned before, it's like life in Lebanon is like it's like kind of uh, simple. Okay, it's like uh, more likely it's like people here is like uh, society is like close to to each other. There is a social life, uh, lots of social life in Beirut, especially in Beirut. As my experience for is like in daily life in Lebanon is like also simple but a big challenge every day. It's like you face a lot of circumstances according to the this like politics way. Uh, first of all, it's affected a lot of parts of life in a way because uh, as we know, uh, Lebanon based on like uh, sectarian uh, groups. Okay, and this is uh, it's like affected the daily life every day in Beirut in a way. Okay, instead of us uh, of the politics now economics and also it's like uh, making it's like harder to survive in Lebanon in a way. And every day you have a lot of challenging. According to my work, I need uh, always electricity, internet, and this service is like basic service, but this not exist, unfortunately. But in general, it's like really amazing place. I love it. I love the uh, culture in the way and more free. Okay. According to, if we compare it to Syria, it's very close to it. It's so different. So, so different. Uh, when I came back, the first time I came back here, like to Lebanon, I was like 17, 18 years old, and I found it's big change, big change in uh, society and the culture, people, how they think, how they see things, but it's like, it's a pretty cool place to live in. So you've been in Lebanon now for 10 years. Yeah. Have you seen significant changes in the culture? I know you said the politics and the finance. Yeah, sure. It's like uh, it's like before 2015, it was uh, the same uh, way of uh, uh, all the Lebanese thinking about uh, policy, uh, politics and stuff like this. They were more it's like commitment to their parties, uh, parties like it's like a police, uh, political party. OK, after 2015, uh, there is a movement called Talat uh, Rehatkon. It's according to the uh, crisis of the trash in Lebanon. And we can, uh, I can start to see it's like uh, this is a new generation. It's like uh, they are more free. Uh, they are uh, more educated. A bit is like far away from the parties in a way. But also it's like uh, according to their uh, education, they haven't really learned that much about their history. Okay, which affected them now. They don't know uh, exactly what's happening, uh, what's happening in the civil war, and uh, they are confused in the way. And their parents always like tell their story uh, in their side, you know, from the mm -hmm. sectarian side, from the religion side. But these days, I can see it's like there is a lot, lots, lots of voices raised up, especially it's like uh, in the beginning of the revolution. And there is a lot of uh, new things happened uh, in Lebanon. It's like people start to be more critical, uh, which is an amazing thing. They were just like as robots, like just following their leaders in a way. But now it's like I can tell it's like many, many people I have met, they start to really be more critical about their thinking and what they want for their country in a way. Yeah, but uh, still, still it's not enough according to the regime. It has been like 30 years, they're controlling them, telling them it's like fake things all the time. And still so far it's working in a way. So uh, yeah, the societies have been changed a lot, have been changed a lot, especially with this crisis.
they affected them, they affected their daily life, they affected their uh, goals, especially after the revolution, the people, they were really excited. And now they're just seeking for, uh, to survive, just at survivor mood. They need food, they need anything. And this is variety. And uh, it's like to fall down the system, it's like something in the second place now. Yeah, they don't have that much choices. Here, how visible was was everything that that Amr described when you were living there for a year? Did you did you already know about Lebanon before you went there? I knew absolutely nothing about Lebanon. That might even be an overstatement. I mean, I I moved there with almost no knowledge or context. <laughs> I it's it's really interesting because you meet a lot of people who move to Lebanon like me. They go to learn Arabic or they go to do volunteer work or they go to you know work in in the development sector. And they don't see this stuff. Event- eventually everyone does, but you meet a lot of people who are in Lebanon for three months. And they're like, oh my God, this country is amazing. It's so beautiful. Like people are so fun. People are so nice and friendly. And I think one of the interesting things about Lebanon, you say like, what's it like living in Lebanon? It really depends on the Lebanon. It's, there are so many countries. I think, you know, people often describe Lebanon as a microcosm of the Middle East. And it really is, you know, you have 18 sectarian groups, you have massive social inequality, you have almost half a million Palestinians, you have 1.5 million Syrians in all different social classes, all different spaces, you have refugee camps, you have high rise apartments, you have people driving around in, in Porsche Jeeps. And it is so many cultures in so many countries, and it is both incredibly advanced. You know, you have the nightclubs of Beirut, you have the free press. It is like the, the place that all the journalists of the Middle East go to be free. And you also still have honor killings. You have enormous social inequality. You have a total lack of political voice. I mean, I think I got quite lucky because, I mean, I met Amr very quickly. You know, he gave me an enormous amount of insight. I was also an English teacher doing private lessons. So I was asking them a lot, you know, obviously for conversation practice, but it's also just an amazing way to find out about a country. But I was also reading a lot and really curious about the things that I was seeing, you know, the pollution, the corruption, the lack of basic services, the power cuts, the the really strange politics, the total nihilism that a lot of, that a lot of Lebanese people feel. So I I became really curious and that's, I suppose it's also part of where the podcast came from was seeing this and wanting to raise awareness of all those things that were happening underneath, you know, the facade of Lebanon is very easy to believe. And it's interesting because how Beirut was constructed in the post-war period, the entire downtown is this facade of this like modern capitalist uh, country the, nobody lives in downtown nobody goes there anymore it's a total kind of fake city almost it's really interesting there's a lot of really interesting um conversations happening around it too and I, I think it's a good metaphor for Lebanon because there is so much shit <laughs> underneath this facade of the buildings and the the Range Rovers and the plastic surgery and the nice nightclubs and and cafes that you see if you just want to see that and there's a lot of people that go and just see that but if you want to go and you want to really look there are a lot of really fascinating things happening underneath that are not very pretty yeah and I said to someone once regarding travel I was like I don't think it counts I don't think you've been in a country if you've only gone to the airport or you've only gone to the tourist spots because you don't actually get to interact with the people and see how they're living. And so for me, it's like you don't really understand what it means to be in that space. 
I always say that if you still like like a country unconditionally or like you can't say bad things about it, you haven't been there for long enough. You're talking about real issues and, and you know, essentially uncovering the shit that is there and, and giving listeners not only an opportunity to learn Arabic, but you have a very unique format and for very specific purpose. So could you just share with us a little bit about what was it like when the idea came to you? What was what was going on in your head? when you decided we should make this podcast? Well, I think Amr can, can agree with me when I said the idea was not actually ours. <laughs> we have to give credit for the idea to our friend, Chloe, who is a, a really wonderful French woman who, who used to travel to Lebanon regularly. I don't know if she still does, Amr. Yeah, and, does. and she works on entrepreneurship projects. A lot of it, I think, with refugees and disadvantaged groups. She's really interesting. And, and it was kind of her idea, but... It began because I was trying to learn Arabic. You know, there's multiple Arabics. So many of the resources were in Fusha, the modern standard Arabic. And I, I had no interest in modern standard Arabic. I wanted to go and be able to speak to the refugees that I was working with, to talk to people in, in the street, to talk to cab drivers. And for that, the, the vocabulary is different. The grammar is different. They've simplified everything. It's really great. It takes way less time. So I, was, I wasn't interested in Fusha at all. I never really was. But so many things were in Fusha and I found so many of the language learning were exactly those. They were so boring. I was just, I was so bored of like, Badi Shai. <laughs> like, okay, I got it. Badi Shai. Like, now what? <laughs> Let's move on. Kind of get past this. And you couldn't kind of get to almost the next level, you know? But also I was kind of writing these, these email rants and, e- and blog rants just because there was like so much to say about what I was seeing. And I think those things kind of came together and we decided to make this thing. The the language is like, you learn it on the side because you're actually interested and engaged in the topic. Um, And you're talking about topics that a lot of people actually want to talk about in Arabic because it's such a political language to learn. So many people who are there are there for development. They're there for politics. They're there for journalism. So this vocabulary is is really helpful. And it's, you know, if you want to have any kind of interesting or engaging conversations, you need to know words like corruption and government and politics and the political movements, etc. And as well, I wanted to show people this other Lebanon, this the, the crappy Lebanon underneath so that they could actually understand understand where they were living because you saw so many people who kind of you know they were living their best life <laughs> in Jamezi mostly like Marmachail with the nightclubs and the cafes and I, I kind of want to say look because I was learning it all from Amr and most people didn't have I think that opportunity. So that actually really speaks to why we decided to reach out to you because like I can remember us struggling to pick a topic when we were looking through your catalog which is amazing you should check it out if you haven't. And we eventually settled on a walk through a neighborhood, which is not a typical offering for a language learning podcast. I do have a question because, and it might just be me that feels this way, outside of the fact that development is just such a patriarchal, colonialistic society to be in or space to be in, there's also the added bit of coming from, from wealthy countries going into not wealthy countries or countries that have more visible problems if you're willing to look did you struggle when you were like making the podcast and coming up with the topics with feeling like this isn't my place or you know I'm just another western person coming in talking crap but not really offering solutions I mean that's definitely something I I could have struggled with but I mean 
it definitely obviously crossed my mind. I'm, I'm relatively self-critical, but at that point, Lebanon had just pissed me off so much. I kind of just wanted a space to rant. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was sick of just emailing my family with rants about like, oh, the air is so dirty. Um, but I think, I think in the podcast in general, I try to kind of build a constructive narrative too. And I mean, a lot of the information I was just passing on and putting in different language, but it was coming from, Amr, his friends, my students, the people I was talking to. And I was trying to kind of put spotlights on these issues and try to increase the understanding of them too. I mean, it's not that that was necessarily, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing it massively out of an awareness raising thing. I just, there were interesting topics that I felt weren't talked about enough or weren't discussed enough or well enough understood among in particular Westerners who were kind of there to learn Arabic and, and didn't really want to see the stuff. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, it's also just to help people to understand what's really going on or, you know, and even, even if I don't fully understand, I think I, I had enough of an understanding that it does shed some light and it does, it is somewhat helpful. And I hope not as nihilistic as, as the average narrative about Lebanon, because, you know, I, I try to identify the real issues, which is usually governance and government and, and politicians, as well as kind of different, different power plays and things like that. Would it be fair to say that essentially you know, looking at this as a language learning platform, your target audience, to some extent, is Westerners going to study in Lebanon who are really only seeing a very, very select part of the society, which is extremely wealth in a country where there is that absolutely extreme visible inequality. And the podcast invites, you know, whoever's learning Arabic to actually contextualize their language learning. Yeah, and I think it, it kind of goes to our language learning philosophy and what we always say is, you know, why learn dialect? It's because language is not about learning a language for the sake of it. It's about talking to people. That's always why, you know, Fusha never interested me because I wanted to actually be able to have conversations with real people in who actually were from that place. And if you learn Fusha and you go there, you can talk to, you know, you can go to the universities, you can listen to the news, you can read the books, but you can actually talk to, you know, both the 99% of the population, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm underestimating Lebanese education rates. There. <laughs> I really am. And it's exactly that. It's about look at where it's coming from and try to understand the culture as well as the language. And don't, you know, don't, I saw a lot of this kind of, um, you know, I don't know what to call it, like exotification, like Orientalism of like, oh, it's so like beautiful and the culture is amazing and like the food is so good and like they're so, they're so, you know, they're victims and they're so unfortunate. And I wanted to kind of complexify also the understanding of the country, the problems, the mindset, which is often like just really problematic, which, but also, you know, understanding where that comes from and how difficult life can be but how like beautiful life can be and just basically trying to say like look look at the country look at the real country not the one that you want to see not the one that you don't want to see not the one that you think it might be not what you're seeing in you know books or on tv or in the news but like what it is like for the people who live here yeah anyone you want to learn a language you like the language because of the culture of the language you know it's like uh, nobody like to learn just the language uh, who cannot speak it with people 
And this is what we are focusing almost on the real Arabic about to show people is like the, the culture behind this language and how the people processing the uh, this thing in their mind, how they thinking, how they daily life, how they react with their expressions, with their uh, everything. And this is, I mean, it's like uh, uh, this uh, resource is going to be uh, good for people who are seeking to understand, not just to speak. Uh, when you understand the culture, you will understand how it's like uh, the meaning behind the language, which is uh, it's like Kira and I, I think it's like mostly Kira. She wrote a lot about this and she, uh, she met the goal behind uh, real Arabic. Like I'm now thinking about my entire relationship with Arabic and it's exactly as Amr said, I had an amazing teacher you know, we'll go out for lunch every so often because I love her, right? I love her. I love the culture that she presented and she opened this whole doorway for me. What was really interesting about your responses just now was, especially for you, Kier, was how it was basically a restatement of what Amr was saying at the beginning when we asked him about daily life in Lebanon, how it is this thing where it's challenging but it's also so beautiful and so wonderful and culturally dense that adapting and acclimating to those challenges is a part of life and you accept it because of the freedom that you get to be in that space and so that is beautiful honestly I would love to jump into listening to the podcast that we picked the episode that we picked out now that we've talked you know heard so much Amar and Kira about your your insights and the amount that I've learned about Lebanon, even in the last, you know, 45 minutes that we've been speaking, um, yeah. we won't be able to include every minute of it, but, you know, even learning about Amr, the, the power generator that you're using in order to have access to the internet, you know, what is, what is electricity like in, in Lebanon? Understanding that there, the policies that the government has in place means that there are outages. Electricity is cheap, but there's, you know, severe outages and then people have to come up with these creative adaptations or have more expensive adapters and backup generators in order to make life work with electricity that's what they need so the the episode that we had picked out was about honor culture and like Angie said earlier it was really hard to pick an episode um, even for the first time that we were listening to it and now I have to commend you every episode is in engaging. The, the, I mean, the topics are the ones that you want to click on. And something that really stood out to me when I, when I listened to the first episode, first of all, that you have the transcript online. And second of all, that the entire podcast is not in Arabic. The podcast is actually in Arabic and English. Tell us about that. Why is it in Arabic and English? And also, how does that serve the purpose of the podcast, what you're going for? Okay, so I'm not gonna lie. I also stole this idea. I don't. Kick, I'm not going to take credit for any, for any ideas that aren't mine. It's actually from the Duolingo podcast. Um, the idea of it is that you can listen to it on your train journey or whatever, and even if you don't follow everything that happens in the paragraph, the English part kind of summarizes and contextualizes what's coming because that's a, of course a huge part of understanding. If you miss, if you miss a lot then you're not going to understand what's happening in the next paragraph. So it's trying to, to give you that. But it turns out they're actually a bit too complex for that, except for advanced listeners. And people who are advanced enough don't actually really need that so much. Um, because really how most people seem to use the podcast is they really sit down and, you know, with the transcript in front of them, both languages go word for word 
try to understand a sentence, go back, try to understand it again. So actually, we weren't expecting the depth of engagement that people would have with the material. Um, so it's super interesting. I'm looking at the comments for the episode that we're going to watch. What really got me one of their last sentences that says, moreover, the Arabic is not in Fushat Arabic. Can you arrange Fushat Arabic as it's pure Arabic? Thanks. This I- is something you get all of the time especially from people who like for example in Syria there's these three high school degrees one of them is science one of them is like Arabic language and one of them is business and like the people who like have studied Arabic language properly are horrified that we teach this I'm like but this is the Arabic that you speak at home and they're like yes but it's not pure it's not right like like it's something dirty it's crazy like I haven't seen this for any language except for people can really yes so you mentioned earlier just in conversation you know that I use a lot of sayings I use a lot of um, Mm. idioms and whatnot which I do and so that's called African-American vernacular Mm -hmm. English which is similar to but different than standard American English and so when I go into spaces I typically code switch into what a lot of us will call like professional English or academic English and that is a holdover in the, in the U.S. at least, where white Americans are the pinnacle. And so what they spoke is the language that is accepted, right? And they speak standard English. And I think it's everywhere. Like, that's the reason why there's so many different dialects of the thing. Like, my cousin is from Zimbabwe. She speaks Shauna, but she doesn't speak the same Shauna that's spoken in Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. She speaks a different type of Shauna. And I was like, what? No, every country has like, because in Ireland too, I mean, you go from the countryside to the city and you have to change. And I definitely change my accent also in, you know, to work in the international world. England is also like this horribly hierarchical system where the accents from the north are always seen as professional, etc. But in Arabic, it's like a whole different language, basically. But it's it's so interesting because they will go home and speak it. So it's almost not a class thing. It's it's like a pride thing in this. And it's, and I suppose it's relevant a little bit to honor culture, you know, like it's kind of their, their honor note. The outsiders can't know that we actually have massively simplified our language and speak this other language at home. We have to teach them the pure one, the beautiful one, the poetic one, the literary one, you know, it's, Look, it's really interesting. You really don't. You, you really, truly don't. You can teach me the Arabic that is spoken <laughs> in the street and I will be okay. React in the comments for us is just amazing. It was surprising and we have a good audience here. Yeah. Also, this is embarrassing, but I'm gonna have to read along with the English because my Arabic is not actually good enough to understand my own podcast. (laughs) Yourself learn, and it sounds like that's it sounds like that's still working. Well, that ending was a wee bit abrupt because the conversation is not over. Please join us next time as we listen to the Honor Culture episode and react to it with the real Arabic. And if you would like more Mina Swana content, please check out Alfuzaik's website at alfusaic.net. And please, please, please make sure to check out the Real Arabic podcast, their episodes and their learning materials. And if you're feeling really, really frisky, you can schedule a class with Amr. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thank you.